The wheel of time turns and ages come and pass, leaving memories that become legend. Legend fades to myth and even myth is long forgotten when the age that gave it birth comes again. Welcome to Through the Glass Columns, a Wheel of Time read-along podcast. Each week, we will be reading, discussing, and digesting a small selection from Robert Jordan's fantasy opus. This quest is led by Tyler, a true Wheel of Time warrior. I have all stories, ages that were and that will be. And I'll be joined by Greg, a complete novice to the Wheel of Time. The Wheel of Time and the Wheel of a Man's Life turn alike without pity or mercy. Join us each week as we read the Wheel of Time in our own sweet time, traveling deeper and deeper through the glass columns. But what does that even mean? No, 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 no. no. You don't get to find out yet. (laughs) Hello, and welcome back to Through the Glass Columns, your weekly read-along Wheel of Time podcast. Now, dare I say it, in the heart of the dragon reborn by which i mean not the first two chapters my name is greg and i'm excited to be here to help you uh navigate your way through chapter five and chapter six of the dragon reborn that's nightmares walking and the hunt begins and joining me as always in the hot hot summer sun is tyler tyler how you doing I am doing pretty well. It's good to get some insight into your understanding of anatomy. It is just either skin or heart. Those are the only two (laughs) things as far as you are concerned. Um, And you mentioned it is warm in Boston this week. We are both kind of dealing with it. And I always get the Zoom sweats. So I say, let's keep this efficient. (laughs) Let's get through these chapters. Let's, Let's call it a good one. I think these were two solid chapters overall. What was your impression? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I think I knew uh, from the cliffhanger last week that we were in for some action and it did not disappoint. Um, I will give the kind of initial comment before your summary that I thought we were a little more present in the action than we usually yeah. are. Uh, we've talked before about the tendency of Robert Jordan to kind of yada, yada, yada some of that. And so, uh, yeah, these felt uh, a little different in some ways. So I'm excited to unpack them and talk about them. Uh, I will just throw out there by way of housekeeping that we are closing in on uh, season two of the television show. We were just talking in the green room about how Amazon is ramping up their production. So this is your friendly reminder, uh, timely listeners, uh, if you're listening to us actively week to week, that coming up in the month of August, we are dropping uh, recap episodes for the first season of the Wheel of Time television show. So if you, like us, are looking for an excuse to draw the shades and turn on the air conditioner, uh, maybe uh, pop on to your Amazon Prime account or one you steal from somebody who's a chump and pays for it and uh, check out these episodes. And uh, we will be doing four episodes uh, of our show, each covering two episodes of that show. So so be prepared and we will keep plugging this as a reminder. But um, we're enjoying that kind of different journey and we're trying to not cross the streams between the two journeys so that hopefully whichever way you're approaching this material you'll be all set for it so i'm trying to do some ridiculously timey-wimey things here as we record 
podcast episodes about television episodes and then promote them in other podcast episodes recorded later, but that air before. So if I'm doing this math correctly, in about two weeks, Friday, (laughs) August 4th, you will be seeing the first of those podcast episodes about Amazon's Wheel of Time television show. So you've got two weeks to watch those couple of episodes and heck, there's only eight of them. You can watch them all and then just, you know, catch up on our podcast whenever you have a chance. We're really excited to go on that journey with you, but I will broker no more delays in our review of chapter five of The Dragon Reborn, Nightmares Walking. We begin with Perrin running out after waking up with his axe, ready to raise the alarm, but Lan and Moraine beat him to it. There are Trollocs in the camp and also a few fades. The Shinarans immediately rise to the defense of the camp, despite the fact that most of them are not wearing anything. They have their swords and that's all that it takes. Um, The battle goes on. Perrin first is battling a bird-like Trolloc, trying to protect Leia, the Tuatha'an who joined the camp in the previous chapters. Um, Initially, uh, he kills a Trolloc who is attacking her and she pities him and he is very kind of upset about her pitying him for doing violence. And then there is a fade. He battles with it briefly. Leia tries to distract it and dies. Perrin is distraught. But then the wolves arrive. They help with the battle. They fight a number of Trollocs. And Perrin then begins participating in the battle. And it's clear that he's doing so from kind of a place of wolfiness, if you will. He's kind of losing himself in the violence and his association with the wolves. Um, This kind of peaks when he kills another fade along with the wolves and then begins howling and Min kind of interrupts him and everyone is staring at him and his howling. Um, Lan kind of compliments his fighting and breaks up the kind of awkward tension briefly. Um, But then Perrin basically has a conversation with Min about Leia and how it was kind of impossible. And then uh, Mazima has a brief conversation with him. And Mazima sees kind of uh, almost prophecy or a sign in the fact that the wolves are fighting on the side of the dragon reborn. Um, At this point, Perrin goes to talk to Rand. He says, uh, Rand says that he tried to use Sidon in the battle, but it failed other than lighting some trees on fire. And uh, Perrin kind of basically notes that Rand is, you know, guilty about not raising the alarm. And then Perrin says he's kind of feeling guilty about not hearing the wolves and letting them give him warning to raise the alarm. Um, Finally, we find that Rand's wound from uh, his battle at Toman Head has opened up. Uh, Moraine tries to heal it as well as healing Perrin. Um, And Rand is basically exhausted, seemingly defeated. And Lan basically gets him to keep going, but only with kind of the, you know, exhortation that you need to keep going the world depends on you and that seems to be all that is keeping rand going at the end of this chapter so as you mentioned i find this to be a much more involved action sequence than we've gotten so far and then some kind of really interesting quick character notes and i think you know which of those i'm more interested in spending time on but i wanted to start off with your review of as you say kind of the first real action sequence in these books what did you think of robert jordan finally writing action uh, I think it was a lot of fun and, you know, it felt uh, in some ways earned uh, because we've now been with the Shinarans for so long. It's like, oh, I care about more people in this crowd. Of course, I still primarily care about our main characters and mm-hmm. 
they he puts you know the female characters well two of the female characters in jeopardy i don't think moraine is ever in jeopardy yeah um and so that was all really fun i think uh again uh now that that i uh i'm experiencing a little of that uh factor where I can now picture the Trollocs a little more easy, easily because we've we've started our journey in the television show. And so um, I find myself kind of picturing these things a little more easily and, and understanding the action in that way as well. My favorite part of that section, though, is the fact that um, when things get wolfy, the narrator changes from saying parent this, parent that to young bull this, young, young bull. bull that, which I thought was such a great choice and such a nice little touch that helped you kind of directly feel that that kind of taking over, if it were. You know, there's a temptation in me to say it's like being a werewolf, but it, it doesn't feel like that. It feels much more uh, what we saw in the first book about the old blood coming out, yeah. like not losing your identity to a wolf identity, but you're you becoming your full self. And uh, so that was my favorite part of the action. I thought that worked really well. Well, and I think it fits with your description of this being the first action sequence that's really well kind of detailed and described, right? Every action sequence we've gotten so far has primarily been from the perspective of a character, mostly Rand, who doesn't entirely know what's going on, right? We've had one sword fight at the end of the last book where Rand, you know, won based on his skill, but otherwise it's a lot of like, what's happening? Oh my God, Moraine did a thing, the battle's over. And so I think it works very well that simultaneously we're getting all of these signs of the wolf coming out and it being young bull rather than Perrin. But at the same time, Young Bull knows how to narrate an action sequence better than any of the boys from the Two Rivers have. And I think that comes across in this is kind of our first time having someone who is almost happy or if not happy, at least familiar with the conflict that they are in, as opposed to, you know, someone who is almost removing themselves from it as they go. Yeah, and it I, I don't know it's how many ways to say it, it was fun, right? But, yeah. um, you know, I think when we've had the kind of skip over action scenes before, I haven't necessarily missed it. I've I've used this analogy before, but my my wife always says she stopped watching Marvel movies because it's like, I don't understand what's going on. They're just punching each other. And yeah. eventually one guy is still standing and the other guy's knocked down. And, you know, I think especially in books where you don't have like cool choreography to to grab you or or what have you. I was just on a long flight and the guy in front of me binged. Um, I think he only made it through three of the John Wicks, but he might've gotten through all four. Ooh. And I, I was just like, not hearing a word, but like awe-inspired by the action of those movies. The choreography yeah. is so incredible, um, which is to say that, you know, it's just a reminder that when you're in a book, I think that becomes hard to describe. You're absolutely right that this is a little stronger in its description. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, I usually just kind of do what my wife does at Marvel movies is gloss over. I'm like, okay, who's walking away from this one and and who's falling? So I didn't do that as much here and it, it was certainly engaging. Um, and then I don't know if this counts as one of your character beats, but the, the fact that Perrin is having trouble kind of coming back seemed yeah. very significant to me as well. 
Yeah, I saw two kind of character notes in the midst of, as you say, really fun action. Um, you noted one of them there, right? I think the fact that Perrin is almost getting lost in Young Bull as opposed to having them kind of exist simultaneously. And he's, he spends a decent amount of time in this chapter and a bit in the next thinking about like Elias and how does he manage to try to do this. Um and then the other thing that I noted was Leia, right? Obviously her death. And then also that really, I think, kind of like touching scene where she sees Perrin save her. And instead of looking grateful, she almost looks like sad for Perrin having to have done that. And I thought those two moments worked really well for establishing this as much as a, a character Perrin scene as it was an action sequence. And I think that's why it works so well on the page, because as you say, usually action doesn't work great on the page. Um, And I'm right in remembering, sorry, uh, listeners, we actually have had a pretty big gap in our recording lately. Um, I'm right in remembering that Leia's death was foretold. Min saw this. And so um, I knew when I was reading this, I'm like, well, he's not going to be able to save her. And that just brought out that classic mythological kind of trope, right? Of like, you know, you know, somebody is is destined to die. And so in fighting against that, you kind of cause it or, you know, yeah. you can't stop it. And it, it almost causes it. That's not exactly what happened here. But it just felt very familiar to that kind of, um, you know, uh, I don't know. Is that a paradox? It's not quite a paradox, but that kind yeah. of idea where where you are trying so hard to fight against it that, that you know, it you shouldn't. It's just inevitable the way it is. Yeah. And I think for me, what works so well about this is both the moment, as you say, where Perrin is fighting an impossible battle and he even kind of knows it. And then for me, at the end of the sequence, Min is the one who takes him out of kind of the howling and being a wolf. And then immediately Perrin tells her what happened to Leia and her kind of resignation about it. I feel like hit me just as hard as Perrin's kind of futile fight against it. She's she's seen it so many times. And so that reaction, I think, really stood out to me just as much as Perrin's did in that respect. Um, the other thing that stood out to me in kind of the immediate post-action section is Mazima and his increasing willingness to attribute anything to the Dragon Reborn, with him basically saying like, oh, the wolves are on our side. This must be the camp of the dragon, which I found kind of telling of where his mind state is on top of obviously... Perrin and Min kind of dealing with loss. Yeah, it's it's funny in our modern context. Um, you know, I think we all probably have taught a little bit about motivated reasoning and the psychology behind those things. And it, you know, in this world where conspiracy theories have run rampant all of a sudden and are really doing great harm, it's kind of unfortunate to see an example of it here, which is, you know, when you are so devout in your belief, whatever, not necessarily a religious belief, but uh, your political belief, your social belief, that any piece of evidence is just going to uh, connect with it. And, you know, what stood out about that moment you're describing is that we had previously heard that Perrin is probably a dark friend because the white from the white cloaks, we heard this because the wolves work with the dark friends. And so the wolves are of darkness. And so here you got what, you know, would have been interpreted by one group as a sign of of being dark friends. And it's like, nope, it just means we're what yeah. what we believe is right. And we should continue to do exactly what we're doing. And and it is, um, you know, it's it's not that that's a new feeling for the modern day at all. It's it's yeah. kind of a well-documented old psychological force, but it's it's kind of screwy to think of 
hey, these guys in a mountain camp who have yeah. fanatic beliefs. We have another word that we tend to use for groups like that. Uh, yeah. And maybe uh, if we weren't on the side of these guys, we'd use that word. <laughs> well, and I really like the contrast of the white cloaks, right? Because it's exactly the same thing, but we want to treat it differently when it's what we call the good guys instead of what we call the bad guys. And so I think Robert Jordan is is playing with that really effectively, right? When we read the prologue like five chapters ago, we reacted very differently to this exact same sort of logic, right? That's yeah, what Peter yeah. Nial was doing the whole time. Um, my last big note here is about Moraine coming through and healing everyone and kind of disrupting the Rand Perrin conversation, right? I don't have a ton of early notes about what they're talking about. It seems mostly recap from my perspective, but I think those three characters kind of colliding on screen, if you will, or on the page for the first time, um, I think was an interesting little dynamic. I'm, I'm curious what you got out of that last like third of the chapter. I don't have a lot of like big star notes, but it, it's kind of our recap slash world building slash characters smashed together that Robert Jordan has done a lot in this early section of the book. Well, and smash them together so that we can pull them apart pretty quickly yeah. too, right? Um, you know, I think the most striking part to me was, I think it's Min's line. Uh, she says, you know, Rand's off sulking and snapping at whoever comes near him. And Perrin says, don't worry about it. He'll talk to me. Um, and I just really liked that as a character beat to remind us that, hey, these boys have been through a lot, but there's still something deep that connects them. And yeah. um, that you know, he's right is the other thing, right? It's not just that he believes that, it's that he's right and that that um, Rand will, as far as we can tell from, you know, parents' point of view, uh, Rand will tell him what really happened and the truth. And he confesses this idea that, you know, he really wanted to fight but just couldn't control his power in any way and how, you know, both physically raw and now emotionally raw that has made him, um, you know, it really yeah. stood out. I mean, I guess the the opening of the wound is is quite a literal metaphor, right? Like uh, he is an open wound. And, uh, you know, uh, it's it's in that moment that Perrin tries to be there. Um, the fact that Moraine interrupts it then shows that at all moments, and now he's going to try to extend the metaphor, they're tearing his flesh in different directions. They're sure. opening the wound. Sure, sure. Uh, <laughs> but that... The problem is that he is Rand of Two Rivers and the Dragon Reborn and yeah. a channeler and the leader of an army and on and on and on. Yeah, and I think that there were two things in this section that really drove that home for me. So one is um, when Rand's wound is open, he kind of goes on a quick conversation with Moraine about like the prophecy says, all I need to do is bleed at Shia Ghul. Can we get me there right yeah. now? <laughs> and like that sort of like fatalism, I think really was like, ooh, Rand is in a different place than he was. And it's, it's interesting. I think Robert Jordan has pulled the trick of spending two books making me shout, I don't want to be in Rand's head. And then suddenly has put him through enough psychologically that I want to see what changed. <laughs> and now he's not letting me into his head. Um, the other version of this that I thought worked really well is the very last moment in the chapter. Um, at the end of the last book, Rand is considering the Shinaran serving him. And he thinks that phrase that Lan taught him, um, death is lighter than a feather, but duty is heavier than a mountain. And it seems like he kind of gives in to having the Shinaran serve him. And it just really stood out to me 
how we went from that Rand kind of giving in to having a group of people serving him to now only a few months later, Lan is like, pull it together. The entire world is counting on you. And for a now 19 year old, that is a lot to put on his shoulders. And I feel like we felt the weight of that a little at the end of last book. And so we need to acknowledge how much heavier that's got to be feeling at this point. Um, I just find Rand to be really fascinating to pick into right now because it's the first time in the series we've gotten to consider him as a mystery instead of an open book. I mean, ditto. And I, I think that is a really neat trick. Um, I, It's not the same, but it, it feels to me a lot like uh, Order of the Phoenix when all mm. of a sudden Dumbledore's ignoring Harry and you're like, no, this is supposed to be like, he's my mentor and I love him. And we hear this kind of in Harry's head and Dumbledore has his reasons, but it feels off. And I, yeah. I would say that it's that same feeling that I get from this, where it's like, we were so close to Rand and it's like, he's pushing us away as he's pushing everybody else away. And, um, you know, given what we're about to reveal in the next chapter, I feel like maybe there's some Rand POV chapters to come, but I can also see him disappearing for a chunk. Um, Pretty cool to call the book The Dragon Reborn and then not give us much Dragon Reborn, as the case may be. Yeah, this has always been one of my favorite tricks in this book is it's like, OK, we are going to begin the book by telling you this is named after Rand. And then there's just an indeterminate amount of time until we get a Rand POV. And I'm not going to reveal how long that is, <laughs> but um, let's just say your insights may be on the right track, potentially. Mm. Um I don't have anything else to say about chapter five. I think it's a good move the pieces around chapter, some really solid action, but a little bit less for us to dissect sometimes when that's the case. Um, any last thoughts before we move on to the next chapter? Uh, I would just, again, compare it to the initial Trolloc attack, both in the change in its dynamic and how our characters are prepared for such things instead of like, oh my God, this is a giant force that's overwhelming our pastoral life it's now like oh we know what these things are we know what they want how to fight them it's yeah. just it's it's again you know the oldest trick in the book is put your characters in the same situation and have the the differences show you how much they've grown and i thought it was effectively done in that so take us to chapter six the chapter i thought belonged in the last book which is called the hunt begins and that's because it is actually a chapter title that is in both books. So good catch. <laughs> uh, so Heron uh, basically ends up sleeping dreamlessly after being healed. He is completely wiped out. Um, he uh, comes to and has Lan tell him that Rand is gone. Uh, Mazima asks Perrin what sin they must have committed in order to cause the dragon to abandon them. Uh, Perrin basically says it wasn't a sin and Mazima won't accept that uh, until Perrin eventually says this is part of the dragon's plan. And then Mazima basically walks off saying, okay, he's going to spread the news of him in some places and we must spread the news of the dragon as well. Um, Perrin then enters Moraine's hut and immediately starts kind of challenging Moraine saying that she was the one who caused Rand to leave and that she's putting him under too much pressure. Um, and at this point, Moraine kind of 
snaps a little bit. She gets very upset at a, in a couple of places. She uh, basically calls out Perrin for not completely understanding the situation. Um, we do learn that Rand has left a note. I believe Min brings this in. Um, and the note basically says, like, I'm going and then something about dreams. Um, Moraine then starts asking about dreams, saying that channelers can sometimes share their dreams and different people can experience the same dream. And it turns out that both Perrin and a number of others have all been having dreams of Kalendor, the crystal sword that is held at the Stone of Tear. And at this point, uh, Perrin basically says, well, it seems like Rand's doing the right thing. He's going to fulfill the prophecy. And Moraine is like, well, there are so many prophecies. And we're going to talk about all of the other prophecies she mentions, because even if Greg doesn't care about prophecy, I do. <laughs> um, then um, we learn a little bit uh, very briefly about Perrin's trip th through the portal stone, but we also learn quite a bit about Tear, where we learn that channeling is outlawed, discussing the prophecy of the dragon is not allowed, and that basically no one is allowed in the stone of Tear. Um, at this point, uh, Moraine says that she can't tell Perrin everything and basically shuts down all of his challenges saying that she knows more than she could ever convey and so he just needs to trust her um and then Moraine reveals a couple of interesting things. One, she is sending these Shinarans away rather than having them continue with them. She is sending them to Gaelden. Second, she tells Min that she is not going to be traveling with them. Instead, she is going to Tarvalon to help uh, the Amerlin. She says that only a woman can carry a message secretly to the Amerlin, and so she... Um, tells Min that she needs to be the one to go. And then as they leave, Min pulls Perrin aside and tells him he needs to know a few things, passes on a few visions that she's seen around him. And then finally, Perrin realizes that Min is interested in Rand. And we get a little bit more detail about what Min has seen about herself and Rand before finally we start the hunt. So that mm. is a lot of description of a chapter, which is a decent amount of talking, which are often my favorite chapters. <laughs> what was your takeaway here? It's slightly longer. A lot goes on here. Um, I think there are a lot of pieces that you could pull out. So I'm curious what jumped out to you. Oh, it's funny because we texted a little bit this week uh, just to go over schedule. And I was like, yeah, I read the first chapter. No problem. I'll get to the second one this afternoon. And I'm going to be honest, I found myself struggling with this one. I think, you know, circumstances in my house where like, you know, I am often splitting my attention as I read and also mind a toddler or, uh, you mm -hmm. know, my son's watching Pokemon. And I just like certainly found myself in this chapter kind of reading and then being like, Whoa, whoa, whoa. I got to back up and take that again. I got to take that again. Uh, and I, I always want to say that experience because I think it explains sometimes my reaction to things. But um, I think it's less to do with the quality of the chapter, more than just it is complex and it's like dense. a lot of talking. Like you say, yeah, dense, better word for it. And uh, it's it's also, as you alluded to, not my favorite type of thing where it's like, I'm going to remind you of some prophecies you've heard before and give you a bunch more. Um, and I, I stand by my statement that most of the time that's kind of too cute by half. Um, yeah. And, you know, when I read something like that, my mind goes to, OK, how will that be fulfilled in a way that's literally true but unexpected in some way right yeah. uh which tends to be the game uh authors play with that so i'm i i think i'm excited to hear you unpack some of them because i'm sure they will be more meaningful to me but um i struggled a little with this one 
Yeah, and that's totally fair. And most of the notes that I have in here are details, right? I found myself reading this section of the chapter being like, yeah, okay, they're going there, they're doing that. This is why they can't do this thing. This is why they can't do that thing. Oh, that's a really interesting piece. And mm -hmm. so I don't know that I actually have any big comments on this chapter. It was fine. It was dense. It did a lot of world building, but I have a million itty bitty little things that I want to pull out because I find them <laughs> fun in one way or another. Um, well, first... let me let me grab a big one then before yeah. you get into tiny details and just say um, I was really surprised by the fact that Rand was just gone. And I don't want to yeah. miss that as we start to unpack what follows. Uh, hence my rude interruption. No. Uh, but uh, I do think like that was really surprising. And again, uh, what I alluded to moments ago that I think this means I could see us being in Rand's head soon. I could also see we just, you know, it's the Dragon Reborns book because we're all working towards He's the MacGuffin, right? We're all working right. towards him and we have no idea what he's up to or where he is. Um, and so I thought that was a surprising choice. Um, and, you know, always emphasized whenever Moraine is taken aback by something. And I yeah. think it's clear she didn't quite expect it to happen. So. Yeah, and I think if we're thinking about Moraine being taken aback by things, um, the early section of this chapter is Mazima again. We just talked about him, so whatever, I'm skipping it. Uh, <laughs> once Perrin gets into Moraine's hut, we immediately get another immediate conversation, which I think surprises me. Uh, Perrin challenges Moraine, which is in and of itself surprising, and Moraine doesn't respond with her usual cold iciness. She almost seems more like engaged and almost angry or fiery than we typically see her in this chapter. Um, and it reminded me of one of the things, as you were describing this, one of the things that Moraine tells Perrin is this isn't the plan that I wanted. I think that Rand being on his own is basically a death wish, right? She enumerates all mm. of the ways like the Forsaken are after him and he doesn't know what's coming and he doesn't know what's ahead of him and he's going after the scariest of the prophecies and he can't always channel and when he does, it's not what he expects. And she really directly, I think, for Moraine, who usually talks around things, she won't even say he's the Dragon Reborn in this chapter. She just keeps saying he is what he is. But mm. she outright says, my plan was not to have him alone. And Moraine discussing her plans outright is not a thing that ever happens. So I found this to be a really interesting early section of, as you say, Moraine was shocked by Rand vanishing. And then to see her off kilter in this way is something that I really, even after, as you've said, we had a few Moraine surprises before, she usually kind of recovers and then immediately starts fighting whatever caused her to be off kilter. She can't do that this time. Uh, and again, I'm probably just curving from your future notes. Lan is also off kilter, right? Because mm -hmm. uh, it's like, hey, do you have a message for your girlfriend? And he's like, what? No, I don't have a girlfriend. And yeah. oh, wait, you all know, like everybody, everybody knows. Um, and so, uh, you know, again, I don't think uh, I don't worry as much about that secret as I do Moraine's secrets and yeah. so on. But I do think it was another example of um, combined between those. And I would probably throw Min into this category too. Everybody who seems to be in the kind of mentor level or the like the adults are all off kilter and not yeah. where they thought they would be. So um, I think that sets up a really fun book of, okay, let's get things back under control um, without us even really necessarily understanding fully what took them out of control. So, yeah. all right, hit me with some of your little details that you want to pinpoint. Yeah, and absolutely. vaguely say, remember this. 
Yeah, I'm the horse's have, name was Cupcake. <laughs> I'm gonna have a bunch of things that I'm like, let me just put a pin on this, and then you supply the string and connect it to whatever you would like to. Um, okay, so my first one that jumped out at me um, was Moraine starts going, "Which forsaken are loose?" That is a question that she asks Perrin, and then we both get an interesting perspective of Perrin thinking about how he perceived the forsaken as like mythical stories that his mother told him but we also get what i always personally find fascinating is just the list of names with no context um i think you've described this before as something that star wars does really well of just like dropping like oh the clone wars and then we never hear about it again for three more <laughs> movies um i think that that works really well here where uh moraine um i don't have the exact page in front of me so this may not go exactly right but she's like yeah is it lanfear or ishamel or uh Aganor or just like a big old list and and that to me always makes me go oh my god I want to know every single person on this list so I'm curious whether any of that kind of jumped out to you as well that kind of like Moraine just overwhelming you with words without definition section uh well I'm right that Lanfear is a name we know mm -hmm. right yeah okay yes <laughs> you made me second guess myself so that one certainly stood out um Isha Mael uh, stood out to me as a Melville fan because uh, yeah. it is not identical. And I know there's a biblical Ishmael. And as I'm saying that out loud, I feel like we've had that exact conversation before at some point. So I assume there was a reference to that Forsaken One in the first book somewhere. In the television show, actually. Oh, hmm. I mean, we haven't watched the television show. What are you talking about? It's not <laughs> August yet. Uh, and... Um, so though, yes. And then exactly like you said, that's good tip of the iceberg. I want to know those stories. It is funny where parents like what those are just legends. It's like, dude, you were in the last book. Like, yeah, <laughs> you saw the heroes come when your buddy blew the horn. Like, I don't understand why this is so shocking to you. But um, but yes, just agreed. And the you know, I, I think we've talked before my PhD is in um, colonial poetry. So like when it's presented as little rhymes and verse that just kind of uh, itches part of my brain and I think a little bit about uh, you know the ways in which poetry and storytelling functioned in my dissertation and it's just always fun to see it functioning that way in a fantasy world yeah and I don't really have anything else to say about that other than like it works right it, yeah. it just gets me excited to get all of those things detailed in a variety of ways and I don't have a background in colonial poetry surprisingly <laughs> enough but I feel the same way so that's a good sign um then we get into the prophecy section, right? And I just need to mention a bunch of these prophecies and then get your wild harebrained ideas about what you think might they might pertain to. Okay, a few things that Moraine says she does not understand in the prophecy. She says that Rand will slay his people with the sword of peace and destroy them with the leaf. She says that he will bind the nine moons to serve him. She says that he will heal wounds of madness and the cutting of hope. She says he will break chains and put others in chains. And they also talk briefly about the uh, prophecy of Kalendor, the sword that is not a sword that cannot be taken by the dragon reborn uh, until before the Stone of Tear falls. But it is, of course, within the Stone of Tear. So how could he get there without the stone falling? So we have a bunch of prophecies there. I'm sure there were even some min prophecies we could throw in later. But let's just start with the prophecies of the dragon. 
thoughts here? Anything intriguing to you? Anything exciting? Even if it's just on the like, those are words I know level. Because that's kind of where I get sometimes. Yeah. So certainly some these just as a, a bracket on the whole thing, I will say they did feel like more familiar than the last time a lot of these come up. We've heard about the sword of tear. Oh, sorry, the stone of tear before yeah. and that the sword and this kind of paradox, um, you know, it feels to me like we have some clear powers about how to break rock and so on. So yeah. it's, it seems like we can find a way around some of those seemingly uh paradoxical lines um the one that stood out most to me is uh well uh let's take my guess roughly in order shall slay his people with the sword of peace and destroy them with the leaf that connected to the tuatha on right because yep. the way of the leaf is pacifism correct right so is Rand going where my head went? This is the wild yep. speculating part of it is I was like, oh, he's going to renounce violence for a while. And in pushing all of this aside and and taking the way of the leaf, perhaps he will accidentally get a huge number of his followers killed. Right. Like right. we know he has a grand army. And so if he's going to sit out this battle, um, hoping to, you know, avoid his destiny by choosing peace, I think that's doesn't bode well for them yeah uh, i have no speculation on shall bind the nine moons to serve him uh intriguing yep. we really haven't talked astrologically at all. i'm pretty this. sure there's only one moon oh okay so there you go so then i'm sure it's something like hey look these nine gleep glorps have moons on their shoulders like they must yep. be the ones or something <laughs> i'm sure gleep glorp is is one of the the monsters yet to come yeah i don't know how you pulled that out that's an amazing <laughs> guess good work um and then uh wounds of madness and cutting of hope the two things that came to mind the men who channel go mad. So yeah. if he finds a way to heal this so that men more widely, not just him can channel uh, cutting of hope felt to me um, could be metaphorical, but we had so much in that first confrontation where yeah. he used the heron sword to cut a string. It felt something like that to me. Those were the things that came to mind more, more kind of references than predictions on my part in those last couple. And I can say no more about prophecy other than good work and or terrible job. So, you know, solid. Um, actually, immediately after we come out of that paragraph, we get a really interesting note about Perrin that I think is really easy to miss here. Um, the very next paragraph after all of those prophecies, Perrin says something like these were as surprising to him as the as when he went through a portal stone and realized how tied his life was to Rand's. Mm. And we've gotten in a couple of other places, Rand obviously learned like the importance of fighting the Dark One in his trip through the portal stone. We know that um, Agelmar, for example, confronted or not Egelmar, I'm sorry, Ingtar, uh, confronted the darkness within himself when he was going through the portal stone. And so the detail that Perrin, apparently what he learned is how important Rand was to him and how important it was to be with him. I thought that was just a really fascinating detail. That's, you know, is one sentence. So it's so easy to miss here. Uh, definitely missed it. So glad you're you're pointing it out. But, you know, uh, what comes to mind is how Rand saw, you know, across five or six multiverses, him always having to confront the Dark One. And so I imagine 
this is again speculation uh that Perrin probably saw many versions of himself and all of them deeply tied to Rand and yeah. it seems like that is not necessarily a gleeful observation on his part yeah and actually just a quick example of that from the previous chapter that we haven't mentioned yet when Perrin uh battled the merge rail the first one that he fought uh it started that battle by basically confronting Perrin directly and saying if you cut off one leg of the tripod it will fall so mm. it seems that not only is Rand being targeted, but Perrin and presumably Matt are just as likely to be targets um, as Rand. So I think that kind of highlights just how tied together those two characters are. Okay, jumping forward a little bit, um, I just loved the moment of more of Perrin being like, "Why do you never tell us these things in advance?" And Moraine's answer being, "How the hell would I tell you everything I know?" <laughs> and that just feels accurate, right? It, it's something yeah. that I face a lot in my classes is like I'm teaching students like here's the simple model and then there's eight ways to change it when you get to more complex things. And students are always like, well, it feels like the rules are changing. And I'm like, yeah, because you're learning more rules. And <laughs> I, I can relate to Moraine here more than I ever have when she goes off. Of, I just can't teach you everything all at once. Um that moment just worked for me. Um, I'm curious kind of broadly, what was your take on uh, kind of Moraine's characterization in this chapter? Because we do see a very different Moraine than I think we have previously. Much more harried and stressed out. Um, yeah. You know, I I think all of us have our moments of being stressed, but perhaps when we're in a marriage or a long-term relationship, it's like this felt like my wife on a bad day and and that's not making fun of her. It's just like when you care yeah. about somebody and they're usually totally in control and then a bad day throws them off. It's like, Oh my gosh, like this is really bad. Yeah. <laughs> and, and the fact that it's, you know, just a little bit of a, a wobble, right? It's not just that. Yeah. Look, they, it's continuing the metaphor. Cause if you're off kilter, then you start to wobble yep. and, and we don't, see steady Moraine wobble. And this is a pretty significant wobble and it makes me a little nervous um, because I think I've come to find her as a calming presence usually and she's not here. Yeah. She's, yeah, she's like, yeah, you don't you don't understand all I'm dealing with. That That's yeah. classic stressed out language. <laughs> and then I think for me, that actually caused me to doubt her decisions that she makes in the next section of the chapter. She decides the Shinarans will not travel with them. They're being sent to Gaelden. She decides that Min is not coming with them. She's going to go to the Merlin and Tarvalon. And just with how kind of, off-center Moraine is in this section, I really kind of almost had like a hesitant reaction to those decisions, right? And part of mm. this is just that I've gotten attached to Min in the last few chapters, so I'm sad to see her leave this group. But um, I, I think that those two decisions stood out to me as like, oh, those seem um, almost abrupt given how much time she's given everything else. Um, so your thoughts on the fates of those two characters or how Moraine arrived at those decisions? Um, well, I think we talked about it felt like Min got uh, pushed up to series regular from like recurring guest star. And yep. then it was like, oh, uh, maybe we are going to lose Min for a while here. And and same as Rand. I can see some Min yeah. POV chapters coming up. Those would be interesting. Um, but it also brought to mind how when you have a character who can see the future that can get you into some sticky narrative situation. So, hey, yeah. get rid of her for a while and uh, have her come back when it's more relevant. And maybe that's why we get kind of a knowledge dump from her in yeah. what follows um, so that we have that as we don't see her for a while. 
Yeah, and now I think it's time for Greg's favorite part of every podcast, the second section of Prophecy Analysis. <laughs> so uh, we get a few interesting notes from Min, specifically about Perrin, and he infers these are about Perrin and his upcoming journey. He thinks Min would not tell him something that wasn't going to be important in the near future. So she sees an Aielman in a cage, a Tuatha'an with a sword, a falcon and a hawk perched on his shoulders, both of them female. And she tells him to run from the most beautiful woman he's ever seen. Although she does say that is not a vision. It is just good advice. <laughs> uh, some land fear there at the end, yeah. clearly, uh, seemed to me the most obvious piece of that. Mm -hmm. The Aeol man in the cave uh, felt reminiscent of something we've seen in the television show, but yeah. have not seen here. So I will reserve comment on that. Um, and then uh, I assumed the the hawk falcon and the hawk. Is that what mm -hmm. they were? Yeah. Um, the, those felt the most metaphorical there. Like, yep. you know, two women on either side, angel and devil on your shoulders, perhaps. Um, I don't think falcon and hawk kind of neatly fall into categories of like good bird, evil bird. But yeah. felt a little like that, like, that that was more um, allegorical. And we'll have to see him um, making some choices with uh, different uh, competing uh, whispering in his ear, perhaps. Yeah, and then the one that you didn't mention, I think, is the one that stands out the most to me, which is a Tuatha'an with a sword. That is just like, ooh, that's a contradiction in this world that just mm. like, okay, something odd is going on there, if that's in the vision. Um, and then we actually get one last note of a vision, and it's one we've had hints at before, but Min actually tells us outright her interpretation of her vision of herself and Rand. She says she will love him, and she will share him. And it's not new information, but it's a new take on information we've had before. I just always find Min seeing her own future to be like deeply tragic and awful for her. So I always want to dwell on it at least a little. Um, any last thoughts on Min's visions? Because as you say, it might be the last time we see them for a little bit. Uh, not really, other than, I mean, maybe you're building to this. It's her at the end who says Tarvelon is not safe. And yeah. that was, to me, a really good kind of juicy note to end all this on. Because yeah. there was this feeling I had immediately. It's like, oh, Min's going to be safe then. She's headed there. Yeah. Now, remind me, we know Egwene and... um and Nynaeve headed that way yeah. between books, right? Or at the end of the last book. Correct. We have not met them here. So we assume that journey is headed there and, and going smoothly, at least at this point. Actually, would be over because it's been a few months. Yeah. Um if they just if they it, just walked and kept walking, <laughs> they it, would essentially be there. <laughs> exactly. I think if we look at the calculations that Rand was doing in the previous book of how long it would have taken him to walk from Carrien to Toman Head, we can kind of flip that and figure out the reverse. It's about the length of time we've been away from them. Now, maybe it's winter, okay. maybe it slows them down a bit, but yeah, somewhere in that range is, is about where we're at. They should be arriving at Tarvalon soon, I think is, and is a is good Matt with them? at least as far as we knew he is yes because he's being taken to tarvalon he still needs to be healed of his link to the dagger right okay so i mean again those are a whole bunch of people i care about and now we know that place is not safe um but the vagueness of it is not safe is it not safe because there's corruption within the Aes Sedai, or could it be there is now a force coming 
that is going to overwhelm the kind of Eastern defenses and, and start washing its way towards Tarville on. It seems possible either way. Yeah. And I think, and I think if we're talking (laughs) about men, there's also the question of, is it not safe in the, I'm worried that there might be danger there sense, or is it not safe in the sense she has seen something that makes her know it is not safe. Right. Because that's always something to keep in mind with men. She doesn't always tell you when she's seen something. So I find this, as you say, to be a, a, pretty effective kind of cliffhanger for a character that otherwise didn't have a whole lot of tension. It was more about like the world building and character development. So I think that works pretty well. Um, Any last thoughts before we leave these two chapters behind and look at a three pack for next week? Uh, So I would just say, I felt like in book two, we spent a lot of time saying like, get on with it. Like it's time. Like this is enough preamble. This is enough reminder of what happened. Um, I don't know. I have not read ahead, but it feels to me like we just got through the preamble and yeah. like we're off now. And so to me, I found this as a really exciting pair of chapters for that reason. I'm like, okay, we did this all a lot faster. We got our, sh- our brief reminders. And, you know, again, I think it felt very significant that the two author on came back in the picture. Cause it felt yeah. like we kind of left them behind. Maybe a detail we didn't hit on strongly enough in this second chapter is that dreams are infectious, that everybody's yep. having the dream because Rand was having the dream, but then also that Loyal is immune to that. All right. of that felt like detail that is meaningful later, right? Yeah. Uh, so um, all of that is to say, like, I found a lot to chew on here. Despite my dislike of, of prophecies, um, I really enjoyed these two chapters and you know, again, I I uh, spent uh, I was just on a trip. And um, when my wife and I go on trips, what we do is we go to bookstores because she is uh, uh, manages a bookstore and I just like buying books. And like every time I would go check out the Wheel of Time books and be like, oh, I'd like to read these faster than I'm reading them. <laughs> like, I, you know, just kind of stroking them lovingly, like I'll get to you, my friends. Um, or, or looking at Brandon Sanderson and being like, is this how I like use these energies? Do I do I move on to him? And and just uh, do that. Um, But all of that is just to say, like, it shows that, you know, um, whatever hesitation I had at the initial parts of this project, like I'm, I'm in it and I'm, I'm very excited to see like where this is going and and how this builds. I did, uh, you know, this is not a surprise to Tyler revealed on air, found a cool uh, like making of wheel of time uh, series, like behind the scenes that is either an edition they had in the UK that is not available here or maybe is uh, just something repackaged. And I I picked it up. I'm like, I could read a little of this. And I thumbed quickly through the table of contents. I'm like, I can't read any of this. <laughs> like, there, there are so many words I don't know and like things I'm sure I want revealed in the context of these books. So yeah. I have set it aside and I will hand it to you next time I see you without it being read. So talk to us about next week. <laughs> yeah, so next week we are actually going to be continuing in the head of Perrin, which as far as I'm concerned, deserves like a rah-rah or some sort of cheer because we can never spend too much time in his head. We will actually be doing three chapters next week, two of them quite short and then the one in the middle a bit longer. So this is chapter seven, The Way Out of the Mountains, chapter eight, Jara, and chapter nine, Wolf Dreams. And I know dreams is how you get Greg involved in a chapter. So we're going to have a good discussion next week. But Wolf Dreams, but Wolf Dreams, there's 
something there. All right, go ahead. There it is. We're doing the close. <laughs> <laughs> I was three words away from this podcast episode being over. Good, sir. Uh, I'm really excited to keep going forward. As you mentioned, this book just feels a little bit more propulsive to me than the previous ones. And that forward momentum is just a really good thing for a reader. Sorry, you have to wait another week in order to read these <laughs> chapters, but we've got some good stuff coming next week through the glass Good. So ends another episode of Through the Glass Columns. We thank you for joining us and continuing with us on our quest to cover all of the Wheel of Time in our own sweet time. This podcast features original content developed by Tyler Orm and Greg Cass and is not in any way affiliated with, associated with, or condoned by the Robert Jordan Estate, Tor Fantasy, or Amazon. All content is intended for entertainment and educational purposes only. If you're enjoying this podcast, please seek out the books from your local bookshop or library and join us as we continue our journey. If you'd like to contact us to share your thoughts or give feedback, you can email us at throughtheglasscolumns at gmail.com or find us on Instagram and Twitter by searching Through the Glass Columns. Thank you once again for being part of this community. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe to the show, leave us a review wherever you're listening, and recommend this show on your social media to help us grow our community. We look forward to welcoming you back next time Through the Glass Columns.